And welcome to The Goods, a film podcast. This is Brian. And this is Dan. And we're here to talk film with you yet again. This is episode 84. I don't think I said that yet. And we are going to be talking about a movie that is fitting for the time of year, as we so often do. Because we're coming up on... I always get them backwards. Memorial Day. Memorial Day comes at the start of the summer. Labor Day comes at the end. On Memorial Day is when a lot of the pools, at least the public pools, open up. That's right, yeah. Are you a member of your community pool, Brian? I was for a long time. Then I feel like from like the end or just the middle of college to like 2019 when I got a Six Flags season pass that I was talked into by my friend. I don't think I swam at all for like a... 10-year stretch. What about you, Dan? Well, I just moved, as I talked a little bit about in our last episode, and I was a member of our pool at our old house, and I'm not yet a member at our new house, but, you know, I got a two-year-old and a four-year-old, and so I figure we'll figure it out. They like the pool, and I want to teach the four-year-old to swim because I think starting at age six, you can do swim team. And that was an activity that my siblings did. I didn't do, but I wish that I had done. So, I mean, obviously somewhat relevant to what we're talking about here with swimming. But um, I, I assume, did you take, take swimming lessons when you were a kid, Brian? I did take swimming lessons. I was not especially a fan. I, I did finally pick it up enough to do the swimming merit badge in scouting. Mm. So I did earn that one. Felt like it would be more doable than the hiking or biking merit badges, which you could choose one of those three. Gotcha. Hiking and biking, you had to like organize big trips, whereas you could get swimming at the summer camp. I made it easy, right? So yeah, yeah, did laps around the lake. Not really, I stayed pretty close to the side, but that <laughs> I, I, I met the requirements. I scraped by. And yeah. Probably from 2009 to 2019, no swimming. But then uh, since 2019, I've tried to get in the pool a couple times a year. When I went and visited my brother down in Florida this past year, did some swimming. Good stuff. So that's about where I'm at. What about uh, growing up? Did your neighbors ever have pools? No. I We had a neighborhood pool. So there were three in my community that I grew up in. And the one that we went to was called windmill pool. So it was far enough away that you could bike, but I was too lazy to do that. I always had my parents drive me and it was your basic pool with the diving board. It was pretty big actually, but there was, uh, when I was like maybe in, I don't know, middle school, they opened a really cool kid focused pool that had like a waiting area and like things that shot out spurts and a uh, slide but I was a little too old to kind of get the full effect of that. But I love a good community pool. I always kind of romanticized the community pool. This movie, uh, which obviously we're going to be talking about swimming, community pool is only one aspect of the, the pools we have here. But for me, that was the central swimming experience. Right. The 99.99.99% swimming experience. 
Yeah, for me as well. I mean, I've got a lot of family out on the West Coast, and I, I think of having a private pool as more of like a West Coast thing. But it's not unheard of. I, my next door neighbor actually has a pool, but I haven't been over there in a long time. So growing up, certainly it was all about the community pool. I feel like that's our middle class status showing, <laughs> maybe. Definitely themes of class in this film that we're going to be finally talking about here soon. But yeah, I lived in Burke Center, which was a planned community. And like each cluster of neighborhood had a name and a pool. So there was the Woods Pool and the Ponds Pool and the Oaks Pool. And none of them are super far away. You could drive there in a in a couple minutes. Um, and the, the Ponds Pool was the closest by. But on the topic of like fun deluxe kid focused pools there was like a mini water park called the water mine that was all like gold rush themed with like a, a little lazy river and like floating lily pads you could walk across holding onto a rope net love the water mine that's near my old house good spot the water mine i'm glad that it's still in business yeah i don't know how it survived it might be owned by like fairfax county parks or something so less impacted by the pandemic than privately owned things. I'm not 100% sure on that, though. I think you might be right, because I always would see ads for it in, like, the connection and just the local papers or, like, park takes, you know. So I think it does have something to do with the park system. Getting real deep into the Northern Virginia nitty-gritty here. Yeah. But I, I do like water parks. They're They're fun. That was always, like... A special occasion that I got really excited about was going to the water parks. More than just about any other destination type thing, that excited me. The slides with the big slides and the lazy river and the wave machines and the things where you can like climb. You got to be careful or you're going to fall in. And like there's some places that have these huge castle-y type things where there's all sorts of water gizmos inside and like a bucket that dumps on you. I always really dug that when I was a kid. I, for whatever reason, that ranked up there among my favorite attraction activities that I could go to. Yeah, I'll say I developed a fondness for water parks and like renewed not too long ago when I did get that season pass at Six Flags. Like 2019, 2020, I went to Six Flags a lot and it's fun. They had a slide that was like you get sealed in a chamber and it's like you're a bomb in a plane and the floor drops out from under you like Dr. Strangelove. Oh, wow. Very intense. N not something I would have been ready for as a child, but it was it was cool. Have you seen the documentary about the park where in New... I think it was New Jersey, where they had all sorts of lawsuits. The documentary is called Class Action Park. Action Park. Right, right. Yeah, my brother turned me on to that. He's all about... <laughs> Amusement park catastrophes. That's right. Oh, and speaking of amusement park catastrophes, we've talked about our trip to Orlando, where we saw the we went to the Rock of Fire warehouse. We recorded our 50th episode. That was a big outing for us. One night we went to this place that had some attractions, including like a drop tower type thing. And like within a couple months of when we went, somebody fell out of that drop tower and died so 
I don't know. That one kind of struck me because we were just there, you know. We didn't go on that thing, but we could have. Yeah, it wasn't open yet, but it was it was basically just about to open. Uh, we went to the Illusion Museum, yes, at Icon Park. Yeah. Uh, but this uh, this film that I've been dancing around the edges of, it comes to us from 1968, and it was written and directed by the husband and wife team of Frank and Eleanor Perry. And as I said, it's titled The Swimmer. Great mid-century couple name, Frank and Eleanor Perry. I can't dispute that. Uh, but the original short story was written by a guy named John Cheever. Did you happen to read the short story, Dan? I did. I caught up with the short story. Yeah, uh, me too. It was nice and short. It was only 12 pages. Mm-hmm. Goes pretty quick if you are interested, listeners. And it's easy to find online. Mm-hmm. And so I first heard about this film because it was brought up on an incredibly strange films group that I'm part of on Facebook. Uh, this is also where I learned about people like Jan Svankmajer, who created the stop motion films like Alice that we talked about not too long ago. From the little bit that I read about this movie, I knew I wanted to see it and probably that I would want to talk about it. Because something I've mulled over when considering films to cover here on the show is there are some movies that, like, bother me. Like, they don't stick with me because they're good. They they stick with me because, for one reason or another, I walk away disturbed. And I, I haven't quite thought of how to bring those to the table yet. Like, I don't think it's right for a theme month. I don't think we do these things all in a block. No. Yeah, I think that that would wear us down. <laughs> or perhaps dull their impact, which is maybe good. I, I don't know. Oh, that's interesting. But I, I wasn't sure that this would put me there. But I don't know. There have just been ones, a, f a few, a handful over the years that I've wanted to just spitball how the films have impacted us and uh, and talk it through the the power that film can have, whether it be a positive or just a lasting impact. So you hadn't seen this movie, but you had a hunch that it could be an upsetting or disturbing film. Yes, based on the, the blurbs that I was seeing. I did read a plot synopsis at that point, but okay. it, it told me that it was very disjointed. So I, I thought that probably wouldn't be too much of a detracting factor. Man, this is a movie... I'll just warn the listeners now, if you have any inkling over the next couple minutes that this is a film for you, then whenever we start talking about the plot, hop off and watch because I can't even imagine how different this movie would be knowing how everything unfolds or at least what the last few scenes are like, because I did not know what the last few scenes were like, and it definitely colored my viewing experience so oh well that's good I i'm glad that i was able to point it to you without you knowing where it was going yeah and i guess we'll we'll say now that we do have a top five coming at the end of our discussion so far dan has picked all our top five episode themes i thought i would choose one this is a topic that i have been considering for a long time and just by coincidence, I knew I wanted to pick this movie for this time. And I realized that there was some synergy at work 
should I pair the top five I was thinking of with the uh, film that we're talking about now? And so I'm not going to announce that yet, but you, you'll probably see it in the title of the episode and, and we'll get there. So we not too long ago talked about another swimming movie, Dan. That's right. 13th year. I didn't even make that connection. And so that was a swimming film all about puberty. Now we've got a swimming movie that's like the midlife crisis swimming movie. Unfortunately, Chess Starbuck was not yet born, so he couldn't make a cameo in this one. That's true. But we have in our starring role, Burt Lancaster, who, before I watched the movie, I was thinking was Burt Reynolds, but is not. Burt Reynolds is a different person. Have you seen any movies with Burt Lancaster? Yes, but I could not have placed him specifically. I knew him by reputation as like a classic studio era Hollywood star or at least someone kind of resembling the classic ideal of a Hollywood star, like the kind of guy who would be in a sword and sandals epic. Yeah, he, he kind of is like a like a Charlton Heston or a Paul Newman type. Yeah, I think he has a cameo as an old person in Field of Dreams, which I have seen and would like to see again at some point. I, it's been a while since I've seen it. But I think he's most famous for a string of movies from like the the early 50s through the late 50s. I think I think he was like mostly a 50s type act, uh, movie star. Mm -hmm. I think he did win one Oscar for a film called Elmer Gantry, which I don't think I'd even heard of until I looked up Burt Lancaster this past week. I think that's a book. OK, gotcha. But I haven't read it. I do think. Playing into all of the themes, having Burt Lancaster be like a classic Hollywood star from like the golden age of Hollywood, making a film like this as the studio era is crumbling, I think also adds a layer of poignancy here. Right. So this movie, again, is from 1968. So it's like the year that the rating system is introduced. It's the year that Not Night of the Living Dead came out. Uh, so a time of transition and, and not just in the movies. I mean, you know, it's the year that Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King and Malcolm X were all assassinated. It was a time of turmoil and turnover and the times they were a changing. Yeah, it was the year before Woodstock, the year after the Summer of Love. So right in that upheaval. Uh, a year after The Graduate, and I'm going to have a lot of graduate pull-ins on this one. So I actually have not seen The Graduate, but I, uh, I'm i interested to hear what you have to say. Something we've talked about off pod, I don't know if it's come on the show much, is my idea of a daily jump. And I think this resonated with Dan because he, he brings it up and he keeps me honest about whether or not I'm doing the daily jump. But this was my my thought of, as you age... There's probably going to be a point at which you can't jump anymore. If you're if you're an old person, you don't see a lot of old people jumping. But if you made sure that you got in one good jump every day, could you extend the jumpable span of your life? Could you extend the point past which you could no longer jump further into the future? So they talk about the lifespan of a person is from when they're born to when they die. The health span of a person 
is like when they're active enough to and have enough agency in this world to be able to kind of operate in this world. And the jump span is the the span of your life from when you first jump to when you last jump. So the daily jump, it, it may or may not extend your lifespan or your health span, but I, I buy into the theory that it would extend your jump span. And this is pertinent. Trust us. <laughs> so when this movie opens up, uh, Burt Lancaster kind of sidles into the frame at a pool party. And he's playing a character named Ned Merrill. And here at this party, everybody's drunk or everybody is hungover because they were drinking the night before. Except Ned, because he's just kind of showed up. He like prances in from the woods. Uh, It's interesting. We see shots of deer and wildlife and then it cuts to him prancing in the woods into this backyard where there is a pool and he just jumps into the pool. But the people hosting the party are clearly old friends of his and know him well. And they offer him a drink. This is going to be important. But they refrain from drinking with him because they say they're they're all hungover from the night before. And they also refrain from swimming with him. So he's paddling around the pool. They're sitting around in in the chairs just talking about how, oh, what a night it's been. And kind of interestingly, one assumes that Ned was invited to this pool party, but he obviously wasn't invited to whatever was going on last night. Well, they sort of seem surprised to see him. Not aghast that they're seeing him, but like they weren't expecting him. Mm-hmm. That's fair. And so two things that are going to be important thematically in this film are drinking alcohol and forgetting things not remembering things. Some people remembering things that other people don't. And even beyond that, just remembering things in different ways. Like there's a couple of conversations early here where, I mean, they're talking about the party last night and Ned just keeps talking about, oh, remember that summer camp we went to when we were 12? Like his head is in the mindset, not of the very recent past, but like events throughout his life, particularly early in his life. Right. And so to paint a little more of a picture, Ned is pretty buff for a 60s dude. Like, if you look at, like, the physique of people in, like, the 50s, dudes, they're just not as, like, intentionally jacked as they are now. And and so Merrill here has actually got, like, a six-pack going on. Especially compared to these other middle-aged dudes hanging around, he, he does seem to have a vigor, and he, he doesn't want to give up the ghost. He was 55 when this movie came out, and a couple years younger than that when it was filmed. And man, he just, <laughs> he's in great shape for his 50s, absolutely. I thought he was supposed to be younger than everyone at first, because he just really looks like he's in great shape, and his hair hasn't really grayed much yet, but... I think we're supposed to take him as same generation of everyone else. That becomes very clear from context clues. Right. Yeah, these are his peers, but they're all acting their age. They're like, oh, I can't swim right now. I have to take the wife to the airport. And they they got to, you know, drop people off and pick people up and go about their business. We can't be partying, even though we partied into the late hours last night apparently 
lots of minutiae about like owning and maintaining property in this conversation. Like talk about a pool filter they got and how they might renovate this or that. Yeah, all the concerns of home ownership. But as you said, Ned is urging them not only to swim and to drink, but also to reminisce. He's saying things like, oh, remember when we would swim when we were kids? We could just swim forever. And so at this point, what the movie had me thinking of was like multiple Twilight Zone episodes. So this was 68. Twilight Zone ran from 1959 to 1964. But there's like four or five episodes about middle-aged or older people wanting to return to the past. Wanting to go home again. Like, I, I think... Sterling said his favorite episode that he wrote was one called it's like a five minutes walk or something and it's about a middle-aged dude going back to his hometown and seeing himself as a kid in the past so Ned has got his head in the past he's thinking about the past obviously he likes athletic pursuits he likes swimming and he hits on this idea and this is the first thing I learned about the movie. It's kind of the, the premise that we're being promised. He realizes that these friends of his have a pool. And so do some other people that he knows pretty nearby. And if he thought about it enough, he could map the way home just through people who have pools. And it's almost like it forms a concrete river all the way across town back to his house. And so he decides he's going to swim home by, by pool hopping. And he explains this idea to his friends, and they're, like, not enthused about it. Yeah, they don't really get it. So what did you think about this idea, Dan? I thought it was drenched in symbolism. Like, as a practical plan, I thought it sounded kind of goofy. I mean, I've done my fair share of things. You're like, just why the hell not just do the thing? So I, I kind of got the impulse. But I was like, what's so great about the pools, my man? And I was trying to figure it out. I, was, I knew it was going to be important, but I couldn't quite place it yet. I don't know. I thought it might resonate with you because uh, one of our episodes you were talking about and one summer at band camp, I decided I was only going to take the elevator. And that was going to be my thing. And it's like, okay, I'll bet Dan would like this. So what it had me thinking of was like the Chipotle mile. It's like a challenge that it doesn't really mean anything except to the people who are doing it. But it's a, it's a good enough way to fill up an afternoon and then have a story to tell. I do like a good arbitrary challenge that... There serves no purpose except for the story. I was going to bring up the, the closest one that I could think of from my life was the elevator one, where for a whole week, I, I'm not taking the stairs. I'm just doing the elevator just for the, the hell of it. And so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, the friends aren't super enthused, but Burt Lancaster is. He says he's going to name this artificial river the Lucinda after his wife, who notably is not there at the party. He explains that his wife and daughters are back at his house on the other side of town. Uh, apparently, they're playing tennis. Have you seen the movie Spirited Away? I have seen Spirited Away. So in that movie, I I'm going to do mild spoilers. It doesn't really overall impact your 
viewing experience to know this detail, I don't think. But the main character of Spirited Away encounters someone who she feels like she's met before, but can't quite recall exactly how she is connected to this this person that she's met. And eventually it occurs to her that the person that she's met, so she's now in like spirit world, the person that she's met is the representation of a river that she swam in as a kid. And so this river Lucinda, where his wife was being personified as this concrete river, made me think of that as like the connection between a person, but also like an experiential activity was something that it made me think of. And and also like in that, the river kind of guided her youth here. And then here, he's like clearly grappling with some stuff about his age and his generation as he encounters the river Lucinda. So I thought it was a pretty interesting comparison and, and parallel to this animated movie that would be made 35 years later. Yeah, that's interesting. The flow of a river symbolizing the flow of time. That's it. Probably pops up a lot. I know they talk about it in Ocarina of Time, which is a video game I quite enjoy. But yeah, it's poignant. Another, we're talking a lot about this opening scene. I think it's an important scene. It sets the pattern for the rest of the movie. So one more thought on it. It's all just kind of weird, just kind of off. Particularly our main man here, Ned. He's just, there's something kind of alien about him. And you very much get the sense that there's something about the way that he's thinking about the world that is different from everyone else around him. And it made me think of the book, We Were Liars. Have you read the book, We Were Liars? No, tell me about it. So this is a young adult book. Uh, It's a mystery book. And it gave me a similar sensation where the main character is thinking about something in a different way from everyone else. And you kind of have a nagging feeling throughout the book that there's like really important information missing. So that had me primed for important information being missing in this film. Although I wasn't sure whether or not it was going to go that way. Remember, I did not know how this movie was going to end when we, we when I started watching it. Right, right. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to know what your experience was as we go along. Um, I already mentioned it had me thinking of Twilight Zone, but as it progressed, it had me thinking of some other things that I'll bring up too. But right now he's chipper. He's jonesed about his adventure idea. And so Burt Lancaster dives into the pool, which is going to be his first length first section of this river adventure he's planning. I think Burt Lancaster dives weird. (laughs) And he did it every single pool that he goes to. He kind of like springs out off the edge of the pool and he does like... Have you ever seen the YouTube video Corgi Flop? No. Okay. What is Corgi Flop? Well, Corgi Flop is a corgi runs to the end of a dock and then like pauses there trying to decide if it's ready to jump out into the water and then it springs forward, like hangs into the air for a second, and then belly flops into the water. Oh, corgi like the dog flop. Right. Okay. I think I've seen a corgi jump into a pool, into water before. They're not good at it. So one thing I read about this movie is that Burt Lancaster actually learned to swim for this movie. He, he didn't know how to swim prior to this movie. And I think that kind of shows that he trained for it because his form is just kind of weird diving even the swimming like you can tell that he worked hard on it but it's also just not very natural to him right right but yeah he belly flops he like he lands horizontally every time he jumps in 
And like he makes a point of, oh, and I never take the stairs into the pool and I never take the ladder into the pool because you always got to jump in head first. And then it's followed by this awkward belly flop every time. <laughs> so it, it really kind of embodies the duality of this character, which is that he's like, on the one hand, he is genuinely athletic. And on the other hand, he's a little out of touch. We, we spent a lot of time on the opening scene because there's a lot of repetition in this movie, at least in terms of surroundings, because he's going pool to pool to pool to pool to pool, end to end of each pool, and then on to the next one. Uh, but he runs into a different crowd and a slightly different feeling at every stop. As he goes bit by bit, a couple things become clear. One is he's a womanizer. Like he's just shamelessly flirting with every woman that he comes across. And also he's racking up the drink count. He's just pounding them back. Every every stop he makes, he's got to have at least one drink new. I noticed that too, although it was odd because certainly, at least in the first couple scenes, maybe slightly less so as we go along, the drinks are being like offered to him and almost pushed on him. So it's not like he's saying, you got any old whiskey in there? At first, it's like everybody, it's like the culture, you know? Right. That's a good point, because we have to consider this film in the context of its time, which was still like on the outer edge of the Mad Men era. And like, I didn't live then. My understanding of the time is colored by Don Draper. So it's like, well, who wasn't an alcoholic womanizer? I think Mad Men is a terrific comparison. I haven't seen the full run of Mad Men. I've seen one season, but I think a lot of the themes of like grappling with adulthood in this time of transition and masculinity in this time of transition, culturally and personally, is a really good parallel for this film. Under the C also for the short story Wikipedia article, it linked to like three Mad Men episodes. So, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, somebody else has, has put this together too. But another thing that becomes clear is that Ned has lost track of time in some sense. Like his friends are talking about things and he'll chime in and they just won't be on the same page. His friends all seem to have years worth of memories that he doesn't share. Like he'll, he'll bring something up and they'll say, that was three years ago, Ned. But he's out of touch with time in another regard too, because... When the movie started, it's the height of summer. But as he continues his trip, he increasingly frequently comes across signs of autumn weather. Like he sees trees where the leaves are changing and stuff. And he notes that it gets colder and colder. Right. It's very much setting us up that there's a displacement in time for, for this individual. Yeah. And in combination with all of this, probably because of all of this, are feeling just a greater and greater sense of surrealism as the movie goes along. It's like just getting a little stranger, a little weirder, a little more off kilter. Like the opening minutes could just be straightforward drama. You know, it's like a person at a place and a sense of world and time that we know. But it takes less than 15 minutes and there's no like egregious breaches of that, but just like little details and 
weird ways that things are framed and and bits of acting that just further and further give you the sense that this is not a natural drama. Like there's maybe not supernatural, but like I think surreal is the right word. Like like something in the this reality that is not ticking the way that a clock normally ticks. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put that. So we don't need to comment on every single stop that happens, but some are distinct. Some are worth noting. At one early stop, Ned encounters this girl named Julianne, who apparently used to babysit his daughters. And we have never seen the daughters, so we don't know that much about them. We don't really know how old they are. But Julie, at this point, is 20, and Ned is like shocked by that and you know when you see your aunts and uncles or whatever anybody you haven't seen in a while they'll say oh you the time's flown you've gotten so old but it seems like for ned it's more than that he he really seems displaced from time and that's just gonna be a sense that gets elevated and exacerbated as we go but he invites julie to come babysit sometime which she expresses surprise at because Ned's daughters are teenagers and don't need a babysitter anymore. And Ned has apparently forgotten that. And he's going to keep forgetting how old his daughters are further on into the film. What's kind of interesting and unique is that Julie seems intrigued and inspired when Ned explains his quest, that he's going to be going from pool to pool to pool across the neighborhood. And she actually agrees that she's going to go with him. She's going to take this swimming adventure. And to me, this was kind of emphasizing that this whole quest of his to swim his way home across all the backyard pools was like a very childish, youthful, kind of like a trifle of a, of a quest. And so it's only the other, you know, she's 20, not actually a kid, but pretty much a kid who kind of sees some appeal and resonance to it. Right. And and yeah, I think we're going to see that in Ned's personality throughout the film is that he does have a spark, a charm, but that you always got to kind of take a step back and really think carefully about how you perceive him. Because he's just instantly lascivious towards Julie. I mean, this could be said of most of the women in the film before and after this point. But because the age difference is so stark between them, it's just really striking here. You know, she's 20 and he's 55 or whatever Brett Lancaster was. Yeah, it definitely is striking. Sometimes like these kinds of stories where it's what's the phrase? Is it May, November romance? Yeah, May, December, I think. Yeah, can really make my skin crawl, you know, Uh just as a culture, we've become much more attuned to this being off-putting than we were, I mean, even 20, 30 years ago, you know. Um, you watch movies and, and read news articles and stuff about then. People, it was like a joke if you're robbing the cradle, you know. Uh, here, it's it's definitely uh, striking. But two things, I think the movie knows it's ooky and weird. And, like, that is designed to be striking and off-putting. And second, it... It doesn't really have him come across as like a super creep more so than it just really further emphasizes that like he doesn't know what age he is, what time it is. Like he's just totally out of a sense of normal time. 
And I think you're right that it's kind of blurring the lines. Like, would he be doing this anyways? And like the Mad Men, Don Draper going to hit on anything that moves sort of way? Or is this like he's seeing himself kind of reflected in her as a young man once again? Um, I got some of that from their interactions, too. Yeah, I can see that. Something in this middle part of the movie that pops up a few times is there's this horse field with like jumping gates arranged and this is mentioned in the short story but like Lancaster really seems to have a connection with this horse and like the athleticism of the horse to the point that he even starts jumping the gates and then when he's got the girl with him they're both doing it running and jumping these horse gates what surprised me is that he passes through this horse field multiple times which Seems like wouldn't happen if he's thought this map out at all. Right? I mean, am I wrong? So there's one extended scene here. I was trying to recall if we actually saw it multiple times. Well, I don't know. I don't know if it's the field with the jumps multiple times, but he definitely sees a horse. Maybe it's not the horse multiple times. Maybe it's just a horse multiple times. Because uh, another thing is obviously what we're finding out is that Ned and his friends are rich. They're upper-class folks. So they have these big houses and they have private pools that they spend all their time hanging out around. So it's possible more than one person has a horse. But in reflecting for this episode, I was struck, wait a minute, how many times did you see that horse? Yeah, it's definitely a motif. And it's like, it kind of begs you to compare the horse to Burt Lancaster. They are both studs in some senses of that word. And... Also, like, just sort of wild and untamed and not of the human plane of existence, you know, not properly a part of human society. So it, it is interesting. I would like to see someone tease out the, the connections between this horse and Ned and, like, why Eleanor and Frank Perry centered on this image of the horse. Mm-hmm. But especially there's one scene where he's running around with Julianne, jumping the horse jumps. Mm -hmm. And uh, well, at the end, he like sprains his ankle and hurts himself. So, you know, he's maybe he's not a spring chicken. But even with that important ending point, I thought this scene went on and on. Like there were several points in this movie where I, I thought it, it felt a little bloated. I don't know if you got any of that. It's like artsy fartsy, pretentious. Like, oh, we'll do a slow-mo of him running through a field, and that'll just make you think about the themes. Um, I, I definitely felt the drag a little bit. It's not entirely pointless. Like, there's some effect to it. Like, it kind of increases the sort of hypnotic reality that we're going through here, where mm -hmm. there's just this weird flow of time. But I definitely am with you that it, it did feel kind of padded. Well, so... When I was watching it, what that was making me think was just that it was an example of how when you extend a short story out to feature length, you tend to have some bloating. Oh, yeah. But now I'm thinking, because you hadn't read what was going to happen, so you didn't know where we were going. So probably the fact that I did made me feel the drag more. Well, for me, there was kind of the flip side of that is I had tension. Like, I wanted to know like what's going on with his kids and his wife and his life in general. I wanted some of these holes to be filled 
So when we spend like four and a half minutes of these pretty attractive shots, but like funky angles, lots of super impositions of like one shot on top of another shot. Again, just a slight air of like pretentiousness of like trying to take this this image and kind of plaster it in a meaningful way in front of you and just really dragging it out. I was antsy too, because I wanted to like, I wanted to see, hear more conversation, unspool a little bit more of his life story. So I think it, it cut both ways there too. Yeah, that makes sense. So we weren't too far apart. I will say the actress who plays Julianne, her name is Janet Landgard. She is just crazy beautiful. Oh yeah, definitely. And she really wasn't in very much other than this film. She she did have some TV shows she was part of. But like if you look at her filmography, it's like The Swimmer and then Making of the Swimmer for the Swimmer DVD release. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering if she was going to be someone who I had heard of. There is someone later in this movie um, who I was like, I know that face. Who's that face? And I think it was Joan Crawford. It, it, like, it was one of her first appearances ever. She is very briefly in a scene later here. I was like, wow, I knew I knew that face. But I, I don't think Julie was anyone I had ever seen before. So now the two of them, Ned and Julie, are hanging out. And she actually admits that growing up, she had a crush on him. When she would come and babysit his kids. But... They can't do anything, she says, because she has a boyfriend now. But it doesn't really thwart his advances when she says that. And he's coming on to her hardcore at this point. And so she runs off. Well, it's even worse because she's basically talking about two times when she was essentially harassed. Like someone exposed himself to her when she was at work and then somebody kissed her just like in a public place that she didn't know. And he immediately pivots to like imposing in her private space. It's like, oh, I can't believe that happened to you. I'm going to come drive you to work every day and we can be together. And she's like, uh, and then runs off. I have a boyfriend and then runs off. And it was a very jarring moment for me. Yep. And so there, there you go, Ned, you blow it. You don't have a traveling partner anymore. But he continues on. One of the stops he makes is to visit this old wealthy couple, and apparently they're nudists. This is more explicit in the short story. I didn't notice that in the film. Did you? You don't see the naughty bits. And they're like an old saggy couple, so you know. It's not like you're itching to see the naughty bits. Right, but as soon as he walks into the yard, Ned takes off his pants. Yeah, it's like, what's going on here? Yeah, and then also you get some shots where like you can kind of tell that the old people aren't really wearing anything without it being like a central emphasis of the shot. Yeah, we had so many other weird things going on. I just, I didn't notice anything other than suddenly no pants, Bert. <laughs> this is apparently the only movie he ever appeared nude in. Oh, wow. <laughs> I think you see some chiseled glutes. That's about it. That's all you get. Yeah, there's some some pale butt. And this old couple is clearly familiar with Ned and he with them. And they're friendly to him. But as he's going about his lap of the pool, 
they're kind of talking about him out of earshot. And here is where we're getting some breadcrumbs about what might be going on in Ned's life that he is unaware of or in denial of. And, and you know, like Dan said, we've been wondering, what's actually going on? What's really happening? So sort of what they're talking about is it sounds like Ned has fallen on some kind of financial hardship. And it also gradually gets more clear that his relationship with his wife either has crumbled or is crumbling, like to the point that he may not even be living at home anymore. At least that's the mutterings and mumblings that we're kind of hearing. It's very vague, though. I mean, it's it's vague enough that it could be like, he lost a bad business deal and he's in trouble or something like that. I don't know. I didn't place it specifically as he no longer lived at home, but I also knew that it like it was trying to make you think that there are sinister things going on in his life that we as an audience don't know. And he is either avoiding or not addressing. And one reason I like the image of the pool, here's a graduate connection is that in that movie, there's a really striking and iconic shot of Dustin Hoffman jumping in a pool. It's basically just a visual metaphor of him being out of tune and shielded, basically, from the rest of the world, particularly the adult world. It's like at an adult party, he jumps into the pool, the sound goes out, and you can sort of see the adults out of the pool through the distorted pool water. But that image was really strongly in my mind. And I I mean, I honestly think The Graduate makes a terrific companion piece for this because The Graduate is from the perspective of people who are about the age of Julie and their processing of the world, particularly the older people. And this movie is about, you know, it's most of the characters are in their middle age, slightly older, and they're kind of grappling with the world and everything, all the changes going on with themselves and the world around them too. Really just the movies are kind of mirrors of each other in that way thematically or companion pieces, I would say thematically. They're, they're telling different, very different types of stories, but I mean, definitely some, some richness there for me. Yeah. I've got to see the graduate, but I, I mean, I know enough about it through cultural references that I, I think that's spot on. One thing I thought was interesting an aspect of Ned's out-of-touch, out-of-connection-with-the-zeitgeist personality is that this elderly couple has an African-American chauffeur, and, like, the first thing that Ned says to him is, Oh, hey, Sam! Because apparently they had previously had uh, another African-American chauffeur, but this is not the same guy. And he's talking kind of nostalgically about this previous employee that he knew. But, like, the things that he's saying about him are not very flattering. Like, stereotypically racist things to observe. Like, oh, it was so funny how he would get sayings wrong. And, you know, he was a great song and dance man. Right. And the the guy, the new driver, is clearly grimacing at all of this. Bear in mind that all of his previous conversations, Ned has seemed like at least two or three years behind the times. 
And it is interesting to think of, say, the change between 1965 and 1968. I mean, just as one touch point, I mean, as I said, uh, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X both assassinated in 1968. But it's like, look at the Charlie Brown Christmas in 1965 and then look at the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving in like 1969. And now Franklin is in the mix. So just basically that a 1965 person would not be with it in 1968 or 69. Right. I mean, the I Have a Dream speech was summer of 1963. So, you know, just a few years still in the recent public consciousness. Right. At another pool, Ned encounters a young boy. The boy is just kind of there by himself. He says his, his mother leaves him there home alone at this big mansion. So he's lonely, Ned's lonely, and so they get to bonding. And this interaction is maybe a little weird because Ned's like, oh, you could come to my house and play with my kids. They're not much older than you are. Another instance of him forgetting how old his daughters are. But also... You're not supposed to go up to kids and say, hey, come hang out at my house. <laughs> I had a, it's a, a weird story. Sorry, this is a tangent. At my old house, before we moved, I was walking. So I, normally I walk with my family, but for whatever day, reason this day, I went on a walk by myself around the neighborhood and there were these kids playing. And one of them was a girl who was like 10 or 11 years old or something like that. And she like stopped their game and ran up to me and said, Hey, do you want to buy Girl Scout cookies? And I, I did. And I was like, yes, I do. But for whatever reason in that moment, my brain was like, it would be weird if I said, where is your house? Can I come buy them? And so I said, how about you come to my house, ring my doorbell and I'll buy them from you. And it occurred to me like two minutes after this conversation ended that that was far worse. <laughs> like if that trickled back to her parents, they would be like, uh, yeah, you're definitely not doing that, which like I, I would be the same way. And so they moved out before we did. And I felt some relief after they moved out that like <laughs> these parents who might think that I'm a creep are no longer in the neighborhood. But I'm not I promise I'm not a creep. But Anyways, that's funny. I mean, the whole thing of going door to door and, and selling things, it's like, I don't know, you just put yourself in situations where you're interacting with a lot of people and that has its pros and cons. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so he gets to talking with this boy and I mean, they really seem to connect on some level and the kid expresses a fear of swimming. And so Ned says, oh, well, I'll show you how. And they walk around to the back of the house to the pool and there's no water in it. It's been drained. Suddenly, the quest is no longer possible. Just all of his hopes have been dashed. Right. It's like, whoa, you can't do the swim thing. That's the whole thing he was going to do. He can't do it. But Ned says, no, don't worry. We can still do this. We can go down into the empty pool bed and pretend to swim across. And as long as we cover the length, that still counts. I'm still good you don't have to be scared of the water either because there is no water. And so the kid's like, oh yeah, that's right. And they get in and they fake paddle across the empty pool. 
And Ned starts giving this monologue, which is like partially charming and kind of makes you see his noble side, but also how his ideas can be maybe kind of dangerous because he's saying things like, remember, you're the captain of your own soul. You don't need anybody else. So I, <laughs> I don't know if you've seen any Sigma male memes, Dan. Is that a term you've heard before? I've heard the term. I don't know the origin of it, but it's like the theory is it's like some dude who takes control of his surroundings. It's like alpha male, but a level above that or something like that. Well, my understanding of it, which is not comprehensive, is it's like you're like removing yourself from the alpha male beta male dichotomy. Okay. You don't care about winning. You're going to do your own thing and just exist successfully separate from everything else. And so this philosophy, I was thinking, oh, hashtag Sigma male. <laughs> but uh, then he also says, and remember, if you believe something hard enough, it becomes real, even if it isn't true. And this is where I was like, hmm, you know, is he in denial about the things that he's not talking about? Oh, interesting. I didn't even place that, but I definitely see that. It's like, has he convinced himself that this alternate reality is genuine whatever's going on in his head and so they get to the other end of the pool and ned's heading off after he's just made this speech about believe things even if they aren't true and he hears the kid bouncing on the diving board over the deep end behind him like he's gonna jump out and plummet into this empty pool onto the cement and he runs back and snatches the kid off the diving board. And he says, didn't you know there was no water in there? And the kid says, yeah, I know there's no water. I wasn't going to jump. And Ned seems unsure to what level this kid had bought into his tales and saying, use your imagination. It's just a jarring moment. It's kind of bizarre. Yeah. I feel like there's a lot of different ways you could slice and dice that moment. It's like he has this vision of uh, a kid suffering and that seems to like register something in his brain or maybe I don't even know. I, I feel like there's lots of metaphoric ways you could try to read that. But at this point, I was in over my head. I was like, there's too much literary content here for me to place it all and, and connect it all. Mm -hmm. I, w I do want to just say one more thing about this boy. It really struck me that the two most earnest connections that he makes throughout the movie are with much younger people, this boy. And then also Julie before that. Yeah, you're right. But now it's getting later in the day. It seems to be getting later in the year and we're drawing to our final few pool stops. And at this point, the people at the pools are becoming increasingly hostile toward Ned. On the one hand, fair, because <laughs> he's just imposing on all these people, just intruding on their pools. He doesn't know all of these people. And in some cases, he like knows them a little bit, but it's possible to mean more to someone else than they do to you and vice versa. I mean, if you just take it on a literal level, like a dude in a bathing suit at 4 p.m. is walking into your yard being like, what's up, man? I'm going to come swim in your pool for a couple of minutes. 
And like, I know we haven't talked in a while and we might have like weird relationship history, but I'm, I'm just going to swim in your pool for a while. Uh, I guess I'm not really fond of this idea. I mean, like I, I could see where these, these other adults are coming from. I mean, I know at this point we're not taking things truly literally, but, uh, I just always had that that funny image of this dude like running into backyards and diving into pools without much pretext. <laughs> In the last couple of days, I saw uh, an Onion headline or a site like that that said something like, walking directions on Apple Maps will now redirect you through people's homes when it knows no one is there. <laughs> and it had me thinking of this film. That's pretty funny. Also, the people, uh, it's hard to tell until like the very end, but the like economic class of people is going down gradually as he travels. Yeah, it's like a downward descent. Not exactly, but it does feel like we're getting more and more towards uh, the middle class and not the mansion on the hill. But at one of these parties, he almost succeeds in recruiting another follower because he talks to Joan Rivers in what might be her first film role. And it doesn't quite work out because she gets led away by somebody else. But then Ned notices a hot dog cart that the host is using at this party. Apparently, it's one that Ned himself built and used. And he attempts to buy it back, attempts to fight for possession of it. And the host has finally had enough and says, listen, I bought this at an auction and you got to get out of here, you weird pool crashing party guy. This was the only part of the movie where I laughed out loud because he, you know, he's been kind of laid back the whole movie. And then he sees the hot dog cart. He's like, you got my wagon. You have my wagon, man. That's my wagon. It's got the spot where there's the hole in my wagon. I was like, who is this wacko? Like, what is he? Just imagine you're hosting a party and you got a a hot dog thing you're rolling out. First of all, kind of weird in itself. Like, you, you have a hot dog stand. Yeah, who even has a hot dog wagon of their own? And then this dude comes up and starts yelling at you that it's his wagon. Uh, this just, this whole image just started to kind of crash down on me as, as kind of funny here. At the same time, it would be really weird to see something that you personally had made and used and then suddenly somebody else has got it. That's true. Yeah. I feel like at some point to be like, man, that looks exactly like mine. I guess there's just two wagons that look kind of like mine and have a hole in the same spot unless like I disappeared or something. Like, I feel like you don't have to be this confrontational about it. Well, also, he's like six drinks deep at this point. So <laughs> that's that's true. The wagon sets him off. He becomes an angry drunk. <laughs> also, wagon is not the term I would use. I mean, I guess like what's a better term? I don't know. Cart or something. Would you say a cart? I'd, I would probably say a cart. I, I think of a wagon as being something you put people in. Yeah. Like a radio flyer is a wagon. This is probably a hot dog cart to me. But uh, he moves on from there and he visits a woman named Shirley Abbott, who was his mistress at some point in the not too distant past so a neighbor that he's had an affair with and as they talk 
we learn that it was him who called it off saying, oh, I have to stay true to my wife, stay true to my family. Uh, but she says that it was really because the real estate that they have is in his wife's name. And he didn't really love the wife, but he had to go back to her because she was technically the owner of the house. And this is where things like are, are really going south for him. And also he's just like, I guess the drinks is what you can blame, but he just seems even more detached from reality here. He's experiencing several symptoms at this point because he's suddenly struck by the cold. Like he's shivering. And remember that when he was running through the horses, he hurt his leg. So like his limp is getting worse and worse and he's getting colder and colder. And I also think, I imagine this was a choice. Burt Lancaster is kind of doing more classic Hollywood emphatic acting rather than like more naturalist acting where he really, you feel the staginess, like the pre Brando style Hollywood acting. Yeah. Like Calculon on Futurama. But as Ned and Shirley are having this conversation about their past, it really drives home the idea that two people can see the same interaction different ways. Basically Ned still feels like he's going to be welcome here and that, Oh, I couldn't have hurt her too badly when I left her behind, but no, she's like pissed at him to the point that she says that they never really had anything real. And, and she was never in love with him. And he is out of sorts about this. And he yells out, you loved it. And if this were a video film essay, uh, and we got to the point where we were ranking things. I would get in a clip of Burt Lancaster going, You loved it! <laughs> but she rebuffs him. E even though he comes on to her physically pretty hard. And she has to, like, fight away from him. Now he's he's not doing well. He staggers out of the pool, gets to the other end like he has to to finish the trip. But... It's quickly turning into not a very good day. Ned, Merrill, and the terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. <laughs> Man, if that book borrowed more of this movie, it would have a very different ending, at least. <laughs> now I'm trying to remember how that book ends. I think it works out for the kid, and they're just like, you know, sometimes days aren't very good. Gotcha. But Ned struggles to cross this busy road like it was something that he noted before he headed out. He's like, you know, at one point I'm going to have to cross the street, but it'll be OK. And now we see that actually it's pretty crowded and the cars are going pretty fast. And it's actually not an easy thing for him to get across the road. And the way that it's shot is like very chaotic. And there's a lot of jumpy, anxious editing. Have you, have you seen Die Hard? I haven't seen Die Hard. So there's a really iconic thing in Die Hard where they break the glass so that he has to walk on glass. This is going to be something you occasionally talk about things that make your skin crawl, Brian. Mm -hmm. That's one thing in that movie that I think is going to make your skin crawl. Um, just like uh, cringe. Because he walks on the glass, right? Exactly. He has to. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was getting shades of that as he kind of ran across the street like on gravel and rocks and sticks and stuff 
Right. It seemed really bad for your feet. Yeah, I mean, they even take time after he does this. You know, he's been limping around already, but after he crosses this road, yeah, his feet are cut up, and it takes time to show it. There's actually, like, a lot of foot stuff in this movie. There really is. I'm glad you said that. There's, like, a... He, he kisses multiple women's feet. Yes. I don't know if this was, like, a hang-up of the, the couple that made this movie, or if they were trying to tie that in thematically or just like kind of have it be another image that's up on the screen to make you think. But I couldn't place it thematically. Like if it had a purpose, why we're looking at everybody's feet so much, but I feel like you probably could construct something there, like kind of the same way it connects to the horse and all that. Like it's your, your mode of movement. Yeah. Or it could just be a Tarantino thing. Yeah, that's true. It could just be a fetish. Because Ned's next stop is this public pool and it's super crowded. Like you have to show your pass to get into the pool. So he, oh, and you got to pay 50 cents. So Ned has been running around in his short shorts. He doesn't have any money. And so he has to like beg for 50 cents from this teenager that he kind of knows. And he finally gets through the door. And then there's this attendant who's like, can't go into the pool until you take a shower. And so then he goes in and takes a shower. He comes out and the guy says, you didn't clean your feet. And we get these close-ups of muddy cut-up feet from Burt Lancaster. And then he's got to go and like scrub between his toes. And then finally he can use the pool. All these extra steps have uh, sapped his enthusiasm. And so he's just got to kind of half-heartedly shove his way through all of these people who are crammed into this pool just to overflowing with people this whole segment made me kind of sit up in my chair i was like oh okay here's some filmmaking chops because it's like really rich elaborate hundreds of extras shots and like all of a sudden the sets which had been really bare just a pool and him there's like this interplay of space with all these different people and then, like, we also have the really interesting stuff with the road and then the shower where he has to, like, wash his body and his feet. And all of a sudden here in this last 15 minutes, like, the movie felt more visually ambitious to me than it had prior to that. Yeah, for the first time, I was noticing the camera getting splashed because, like, the camera person is actually down there in the scrum of all of these people splashing around. But Ned gets to the far end of this public pool and he climbs out, and suddenly he's got this whole group of adults yelling at him. I guess what they're saying is that he and his wife have unpaid bills. These are like shopkeepers and restaurateurs from the town. And, you know, they, they don't get a lot of chance to harangue people, these rich people from up in the hills. But now he's come down into their space here at this public pool. They're like, how do you like our water? And it goes further than that. They're like telling him that his daughters think he's a joke which like how how do you even know that how do you know what his daughters say about him how how well do we even know each other it's it's very unsettling but ned tears himself away from this attack and runs off and like at the edge of this community pool it's just like a stone wall i'm sure there must be a normal intended exit from this place but he, like, takes off up the cliff face. He just starts scaling up this stone wall. It's so weird. Yeah, he's, like, 
all of a sudden a mountain man. He'd been in a public pool and now he's like scaling a cliff. He's like Gollum or something, because at this point he's all decrepit and wet and cold and, you know, in the loincloth. So I was really thinking of Gollum. But he, he crests this cliff and is away from the harangue of the middle class. And he comes to the gate of what we assume to be his house. He's, you know, he's he's relaxing. Now he's finally come to the end of his journey. Oh, and also the, the wind is picking up and it starts raining. Very striking because it had been like a sunny day pretty much the whole movie. I mean, it, you're right, the weather kind of got worse, but... All of a sudden, a storm's a brewing. But it's all good, right? Because he's home now. But then he grabs onto the gate because kind of strangely, you know, he started in the upper class part of town. Then he worked his way down through the center of town to the, the lower class part, apparently, or just the, the middle class part where people use gasp, public pools. Uh, but then suddenly he's at this palatial mansion again. That's apparently his house. And he goes up to this big like wrought iron gate and grabs it and it is just thick with rust and like slime that comes away in his hands and his hands are all red and the gate is like if it's not locked it's really rusted shut and he like breaks into a panic and he he wrenches at this gate and manages manages to get it open and my heart is just beating right now like thumping out of my chest like what are are we going to see anything? What are we going to see? Clearly something is off with his house. And so he does manage to get the gate open and he staggers through into a tennis court. And remember, he has said to multiple people that he's come across today that his family is at home playing tennis. But nobody has played tennis here for a long time because the net has collapsed and the court is just like all cracked. And there's a really cool shot of the camera, like, lobbying back and forth following a phantom tennis ball. Mm -hmm. Just emphasizing that nobody is here. And you hear the, like, disembodied laughter of people playing. And the, like, pong, pong, pong sound. It's almost like it's from his perspective. Like, he's, you see, you're seeing it from his eyes and he's trying to process, why are my daughters not here playing tennis? And... He's just becoming increasingly anguished and he makes his way up to the door of the house, which is locked. And he's pounding on the door, pounding, and the camera like flies into the house through a broken window. And you just see that all the rooms are empty except for like a forgotten box. And he's out on the porch pounding to be let in. And then he just sinks down, sobbing onto the porch. And that's the end of the movie. Yeah, it's it's an empty house broken glass i mean just not only nothing there but nothing's been there for a long time right so this is where i was thinking of a few different things that this kind of reminded me of and maybe you've got some to chip into one that i was really getting feelings of in like the later half is death of a salesman did you have to read that one for school i did I read that maybe senior year of high school, junior or senior year of high school. Mm -hmm. And so like Death of a Salesman, here we have a confident protagonist who has a history of being a womanizer and who is kind of living in the past, living in his memories. 
And so he has an outdated sense of inflated self-importance. And this warps his understanding of the current status quo. Like uh, Willie, well, it's not Willie, it's, uh, it is Willie Loman, right? Yeah. So Willie Loman also does this thing where he's always like boasting about his children and that he kind of looks down because his, in Death of a Salesman, his son was like the football captain, the champion athlete of the school. And Willie is still basking in that. And there's this point where he's talking to one of his um, contemporaries whose son back in high school was the nerd. And he's like, oh, your kid, why should I listen to you? Your kid's a nerd. Then the guy's like, dude, my son's like president of a bank and makes hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. And your son never actually graduated from high school. So there's like this temporal disparity where Willie still thinks he's cock of the walk. And in reality, he isn't. I really need to revisit this because really all that I remember is that Willie's kind of a bonehead. And then I'm going to spoil a play from 1949. He dies at the end. That's really all that I remember about Death of a Salesman. I think you could probably get that from the cover of the book. I suppose. And the title. Yeah. Also, Marilyn Monroe married Arthur Miller at one point. I mean, she was married to several men, but one of them was the author of that play. Interesting. Also wrote The Crucible. Uh, but it, it had me thinking of a few other things, too, this ending here of The Swimmer. Uh, one was The Sixth Sense, really a handful of other ghost stories where all along the protagonist has been kind of wandering as if he's in a dream and he doesn't seem to have a full understanding of what's going on around him. And then at the end of the story, suddenly he learns he was dead the whole time. So let's talk about that because what we see is an empty house that's been empty for a long time. So is your read on this that basically either he's dead or his family's dead? What's your take on this, Brian? I think it's a theory that needs to be considered. Because what other possibilities are there? Either something, quote-unquote, magic is happening, some kind of supernatural thing that's keeping him from understanding what's happening. Somehow he's lost time. So if he's not dead, maybe he's Rip Van Winkle. Maybe he's been asleep. The other alternative I see is that if he is really alive in the real world, then he is completely in denial. Like something happened that he's just had a break with reality. Yeah, like his family ran off or something. Yeah. And what I was thinking, again, I knew where we were going to end up. But based on the breadcrumbs that we hear and the way that we see Ned interact with women, I have a feeling that the wife may have left him because he's just such a cad, such a philanderer. Like, he probably brought this on himself, whatever it was that happened. What's your take? So I definitely think there is textual evidence to support something traumatic happening. And I think the death of his family is a plausible one. I feel like there's a couple of references throughout the movie that were not in the story about, like, a hospital or, like, helping you where the movie was really trying to amp up the vibes that something really sinister had happened. Mm -hmm. 
I also I like that idea that like he's also just in like a psychotic break of denial where his family left him or something. I also think it's very clearly intentionally ambiguous. Like the sixth sense, it's explicit that lead character is dead at the end of the movie. This is nothing is explicit. So I think that is meaningful. And I think it's meaningful in that it also somewhat encourages you to read this very metaphorically. Mm -hmm. I think uh, the rest of the movie also, the way that it tells its story kind of supports that too, that what we see is Ned Merrill. He's kind of like a greatest generation, every man, Don Draper, drinking his drinks, living his life. He's, he's rich. Everybody seems to like him, at least at the start. And then as the movie goes along, that just crumbles. And then when he gets to the thing that we've been kind of assuming is his anchor, his family life, his, his daughters, his, his wife, his, his beautiful house, it's just gone. It's decrepit. There's no people there. There's no love there. It's just kind of all vanished from him the same way that a lot of different things were in transition and the old way was going away. The thing that people had relied upon wasn't going to be there anymore. And the new thing was there. And the people who were stuck, who had relied on the old thing, were kind of left out in the rain in this decaying thing. So I think... I like the idea that that Hollywood was on their mind, like people who made movies in the old ways that was gone. I definitely think you can read this as generational break, generational trauma. You know, this guy is very clearly this old fashioned guy in his 50s and the world has moved past him in many senses. So I think the best, clearest reading of it is that it's just, it's really putting, like, hammering this theme of the old is gone. The people who are stuck in the old are left out to dry and and are missing the things that they thought they could take for granted. But I think if you want to come at it from a plot angle and, like, really want to try and make a narrative interpretation of this ending, if it's a debt to Twilight Zone, it kind of wants you to try to understand it on a more strictly narrative sense, too. I do think that his family being gone, whether it's dead or deserted, is a pretty easy takeaway here because mm-hmm. of just how much everything is kind of rotted and clearly unmaintained and stuff and that he, he hasn't processed that. I think that was all really well said. What does Grandpa Simpson say? I used to be with it, but then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it. And what's it is confusing and scary to me. It'll happen to you. One of my favorite lines of The Simpsons. I think you got it verbatim. It's great. And it, it does it does align with this. Just a couple other things that were on my mind. Uh, there's a film called Allegro Non Tropo, which is kind of the Italian version of Fantasia from the 70s. And there's a segment in it to the classical music tune vals triste in this sequence of the story there's a cat wandering around through the ruins of a house and it's remembering the people who lived there and the things that they would do when it was a lived-in space and more than just ruins but eventually these memories of the people they're all kind of silhouettes and they just kind of all fade away and blow away but then so does the cat the cat dissolves away 
just before the ruins get demolished by a wrecking ball. Huh. And the only reason I know about this sequence is because it was recreated as a week's worth of Garfield comic strips Halloween week one year in the 80s. So it's like the one creepy, scary string of Garfield strips where he's wandering through his ruined house seeing ghostly visions of John and Odie. <laughs> I think I've seen that before. It's like for a dude who jokes about hating Mondays and liking lasagna, he's got a dark streak there. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I'll shout out is Something Wicked This Way Comes, a book by Ray Bradbury that I've talked about a little before, uh, which also really has a theme of summer coming to an end and the onset of autumn representing the loss of youth. Interesting. Uh, you've brought that book up before. I definitely need to read that. And you know, by the time we get to the end of this film, it's late enough in the year that I, I think this really should have maybe been a Labor Day pick instead of a Memorial Day pick. <laughs> but yeah, there's a lot of swimming and swimming is a very distinctly Memorial Day thing. So I think I still think it fits. But you're right. Definitely thematically, it's like the decay of stuff when that's what you're starting to think about Labor Day. Oh, this, the leaves are going to start falling. It's going to get cold. My one other comparison that I, I don't think I brought up yet is the book. I read this a few years ago. I don't even know how I stumbled on this book. It's called Rabbit Run by John Updike. I, I assume you haven't read it and not familiar with this book? No, I've only heard the title. So it's it's one of those books that uh, I think is like somewhat of a classic it came out in 1960, so it predates this movie. And I think this movie, it's somewhat sympathetic to Ned, but it's definitely not like placing Ned as the hero. We know that he is a flawed person as we're watching this movie. Rabbit Run, I felt like I did not enjoy all that much because it kind of has similar themes to this, but like it puts you... A little bit more in the shoes of the main character and I thought he was to use your word just a cad the whole time just like a, a d-bag and he's a pretty similar type of character but that book actually ends with basically like what could be the description of the thing that we don't see on screen here basically he has essentially a psychotic break where he abandons his family and runs away and he's a rabbit so he's on the run and he, he can't hold still, he can't settle down, and he becomes like increasingly broken from his modern masculinity role and his the life that he was supposed to live because he just, he's a rabbit. He can't settle down and do those things. And again, I think it made it, him look like a jerk, but I think this actually ties in really well with that is like, if you want to have a prequel story, read Rabbit Run and just imagine him having that break at the end. Although Rabbit Run ended up having a bunch of sequels. You can ignore those sequels if you want to buy into that theory, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and they've all got Rabbit in the title, right? Yeah, it's like Rabbit Redux and Rabbit Remembered or something like that. And Reader Rabbit Third Grade. <laughs> so we've uh, we've talked about this one for a while. Uh, things you wanted to point out that you liked or, or didn't like that you haven't mentioned yet? Or are we just about ready to declare our judgment for this film. I'm ready to jump into, is it good? I feel like I've hit 
the highs and the lows in broad strokes. And I could kind of summarize it in my, is it good rating? Yeah, me as well. So Dan, is the swimmer from 1968 good? So is it good is our signature section where we each give the movie a rating on our eight point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight to our masterpiece rating toward a good, which is an eight out of eight. So the swimmer is a movie that I, I actually quite enjoyed Maybe not enjoyed. I got a lot out of it. It's, it's operating in a mode that I haven't seen too many movies operate in where it's like right on the blurry edge between reality and surreality. And are we supposed to take these things at face value or are we supposed to take them as metaphoric? I kind of like that. And I think it's kind of ambitious and really trying to capture these big ideas in visual strokes and uh, elliptical script elements. I think that's noteworthy and praiseworthy. The flip side of that is just the reality of the movie that I really felt it drag. The repetitiveness of the encounters, our variations on a theme were not interesting or varied enough to like really suck me in and make me excited to see what the next one was. So I kind of have a lot of ambivalence in the sense that I'm not quite sure what to rate this movie. I think if I were to watch it again, it's hard to say. Would I would I like it more because I kind of know the storytelling mode it's operating in? Or uh, would I like it less because now that I know what's coming, all of the just water treading in the narrative sense and just doing these things over and over and having kind of these weird tangents, would that actually be appealing to me? I don't know. What I'm going to land on is a very good, because I do think this is a piece of art. I think it's a film worth considering and digesting. I couldn't comfortably go higher than that because the experience of it just wasn't that exciting for me. And I really, this is one I want to rewatch, like not in a month, but like in five years and see how I react to it. So I'm going to land on very good for now. What about you, Brian? Is The Swimmer good? So I came into our discussion this evening ready to give this one a five because I really felt drawn out at points because some things go pretty slow and there's so much left ambiguous, so many weird things that happen. It it took it down a couple pegs for me, but at the same time, I get that that's the point. And I watched this one like the very first day of the week that we could have watched and it's stuck with me the whole week, and I've been thinking about it. So not every movie is like that. I, I think this is a very good film. I think I'm going to stick it also with a 6 out of 8. Cool. We haven't been exact matches too often in the recent past. So here we are on the same page. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of the not-so-recent past or, or recent past, something I wanted to do with this movie pick is actually choose an episode selection that was a movie I hadn't seen prior to our coverage of it. And this ticked that box. It was the first one like that since I picked Perks of Being a Wallflower back in Young Adult Literature Month. There you go. Yep. So, guys, I said this was going to be my first top five that I brought for consideration. So, keep listening. We're not done yet. Because... The top five that I thought of in connection to this movie about losing track of time, about reminiscing on the past, about not knowing what year it is, it seems, 
is, Dan, what are the top five years of your life? The poster for The Swimmer says, when you talk about The Swimmer, will you talk about yourself? And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about ourselves. <laughs> cool. I'm excited. This is interesting to me because it's not a movie top five. No, it's not. It's a. It's something that would have been difficult to find a good film to stick it with, but I think this one works okay. Yeah. Give us a summary of the parameters. Like, so what? what is a year in this case? Okay, so... Well, a year takes 365 days here on the planet Earth, Dan. Sometimes. Okay, sometimes 366 to keep it lined up with the Julian calendar. But that's the time span that we're working with. And so then we come down on what is our start point and what's our end point. And so we talked about, well, is it a school year, like September to June? Or is it a calendar year, January to December? Or, or is it our personal year that starts with our birthday? And so for me, my birthday's in January, so it, it pretty closely corresponds with the calendar year. Dan's is in June, so pretty soon we're going to be having a Dan birthday episode here. But I thought to keep us on the same page, and since we are quite a ways removed from school years at this point, uh, I said just stick with the calendar year. So that when we say 2008, people know 2008. Right. So it's it's kind of interesting. So for, for you, this is like an age. I mean, not it's off by a few days, but it's pretty close, though. And for me, I turned an age smack dab in the middle. So just going to be interesting kind of how we talk about our ages going through this a little bit, maybe. Mm -hmm. And a, a couple other things. So So you want this to be like personal years of our lives. So this is going to get reflective in a way that we sometimes do on the podcast, but not in this concentrated dose. Right. As reflective as you're comfortable being. That's sure. That's the name of the game. And I know that we've been talking here for a while. So if you got a jet, we can uh, keep it concise. Oh, that's okay. No, I, I have time. I want to do this right. Yeah. Good, good. So I think we'll uh, alternate back and forth as we've done with our top five so far. Um, do you want to take the first stab at it, Dan? Sure. So just kind of a prelude before I, I give my five, some of the ways that I thought about this. So I, I mainly thought of two factors when, when I was thinking, what are the best years of my life? So one is like a, a warm fondness, just like a, a time of your life you like. Was it a golden time? And, and that's an emotional reaction. So all of the years that I picked, I do have that for. I will say... I feel like I've lived a pretty good life so far. Like I've lived a happy life so far. I'm, I tend to be an upbeat person. I tend to have good mental health and good uh, feeling about my life. You know, everybody's got down periods. I certainly have a couple of dark periods for me. For example, you're not going to hear any college years for me. That was a hard time for me. But I have a lot of honorable mentions to the point. I'm just not going to list any of the honorable mentions because so many good years for me throughout my life and like reasons I could justify a year. The second thing is that I wanted another way to measure the year is the milestone slash influence year, which are not exactly the same thing. I've kind of lumped together like you can hit milestones that don't necessarily have a long term impact on how you live your life. But many milestones do have a long term impact on your life. And so uh, the years that I have are. 
I tried to have strong on both of those factors. So you mentioned that you've got quite a few honorable mentions, Dan, but if you had to pick a sixth, something that falls just outside the official canon of top five, could you pick one? Yeah. So again, a lot of good ones. And I don't know if this is like penciled in in my number six. I spent most of my time thinking about the five, but if I were to choose a sixth, one that that just pops to my head is 2002. So 2002 was the year that I turned 14. It was also the year that I graduated middle school and started high school. I did marching band that year. Eighth grade was a terrific time for me. I was getting straight A's and not really trying at school. I had more friends than I had ever had. And I was hoping that would carry over to high school. The start of high school was pretty great with marching band, which I where I really found my identity. And then freshman year was kind of slow after that. Like I didn't thrive quite as much right away as I hoped to, but I still had a good time. But really just kind of the blending of starting marching band that became a really important like identity forming thing for me. And then the end of eighth grade, very warm, fuzzy year for me. So that would be my runner up as as 2002. What about you, Brian? Should I jump into my five or do you want to give your prelude and your number six? I'll give a, a little bit of a prelude and a number six. So I think there's something to be said for optimism. I think maybe if you are consistently optimistic, maybe your life bends that way, but maybe one portends the other just as well. Like maybe having a good life makes you optimistic. I'm certainly striving for more optimism than I've had in the past, but I did enjoy doing this exercise. I came up with a, a pretty good list. Um, not a ton of honorable mentions, but I think a good solid seven really great years uh, looking back. But what I settled on that falls just outside of my five, my number six, is actually 2021, the year that we just wrapped up not that long ago. I, I have that as a strong candidate. Like I, That was maybe my number seven or my number eight, 2021. Good year for me, too. But but why why 2021 for you, Brian? So, you know, I, I was working all year long, making money. Not always the happiest at my job, but I had some, some good days. I think I had the best single day of my life so far in 2021. It was a Halloween, as one might expect. My brother came home from Florida randomly, surprised everybody, so that he, he wouldn't miss all the, the Halloween to do. And then I had a date at a pumpkin patch. So really, really just super good day that like boosts 2021, maybe artificially above some of the others. But I, I think it still bodes well, though, that uh, we're having good, some good times, even as old as we are. My, my 2021 thoughts, which I'll just say, because I'm not going to get these thoughts out because they will not be reflected in my years kind of like a dirty, guilty secret for me is that the pandemic has actually been a really good time for me in my life. I didn't get sick until recently, which we talked about last episode. So that was like two years of more than two years of just basically me working from home. I'm an introvert. I don't like going out. I'm a homebody. So this was a hard excuse not to do that. And uh, just a lot of time with my wife and my kids and 2021, we did the podcast. That was like really a big part of my life. Very meaningful. Tons of time with my kids. Um, 
So I, I'm right with you there. 2021 was a good year for me. We went to uh, Orlando. That was fun. It's kind of like a keystone thing. So yeah. That's right. We had a, our air infector trip. Pretty good year. So should I hop into my number five? Yeah. What do you got at number five? So number five, I have the year 2004. So 2004 is the year I turned 16. And that is also the year that splits my sophomore year to my junior year of high school. A lot of great things about 2004. It is pretty close to the top of the charts on that first metric, just the warm fuzzies. Uh, man, I was having so much fun this time in high school. So many great memories with my friends, particularly Tyler. We just had all sorts of like hilarious misadventures and goofing around and inside jokes and all sorts of stuff like that. I was very happy and low stress at school, just thriving, really had hit my stride at, at school. And that summer was, this is kind of where we get the influence element. I had my first job ever. I taught a summer school class at my high school. So um, this was kind of odd. I don't think too many kids teach at their own high school when they're in high school, but I did that. I was a TA, I graded papers, I helped kids with assignments for a computer science class. That was the first time I ever sort of had a girlfriend. And that was like a really formative experience. I don't really consider that my first love, but I, it opened up my heart in a way that I'd never had been before. And I just have like a, a I'm not gonna choose like a iconic day for every year, but this year has a specific day for me that is just like, put it in a bottle and I, I would drink it, you know, whenever I'm in a bad mood. And that is, I, it was over the summer. Um, it was with that girl and then some of her friends. We went to the mall, which is not something I did all that often. We wandered around, we got food, we were doing nothing, having a good time. We all went outside waiting to get picked up and we sat in this gazebo outside the mall. I think we saw a movie before we went there and we were just kind of sitting there singing songs. And I distinctly remember all of us trying to remember all the words to accidentally in love by the counting crows and i still get like warm flutters in my heart when i hear that song thinking of that that golden time as featured on the shrek soundtrack shrek 2 yeah shrek 2 i apologize i love shrek 2 yeah that's from the start of it right i think that's the one that's at the start but okay that soundtrack got a lot of play that summer for me uh a lot of songs i still think fun. I, I like that soundtrack more than i like that movie to be mm -hmm. honest um but yeah, 2004, just a, a golden time for me. So that's my number five. The only reason it's not higher is because I, I didn't have as many like influence points mm -hmm. that still kind of reverberate in my life. Okay, that's a good pick. My number five, I have 2008, which spanned from the second half of my senior year in high school uh, through the first half of my freshman year in college. It's like hard to paint a picture of my high school experience because I had what I think is a pretty unique experience. I kind of had like a cult of personality in high school. I at least had a better audience for my brand of content in high school than I've ever had since. Like uh, I, I would always, I think I've said, perform at the talent shows, uh, but it was more than that. Like homecoming was a really big thing at our high school. Like, it had this whole week of productions leading up to it that I was very involved in. And I had a pretty free hand creatively. 
And so people, at least if maybe I'm flattering myself, maybe I'm delusional, but I think people would like look forward to what I would put together and co come out to see what it would be. You were a celebrity for sure. Yeah. So senior year that, that came to a head in several ways. I did give the student speech at graduation. I believe I won Mr. Colonial, which was like a humorous male pageant. I just felt very plugged in, which is going to be a theme of my best years. I think if, if you're not out of touch, if you are in touch, it makes it for a good year. And then uh, college also. Start at college. I liked that as well. Living in a dorm. It was, uh, I don't know. I, I felt like I had a lot of free time. I, I had a much easier college experience than a high school experience. It was just like less work overall uh, for me. I did not get a math degree. I got a humanities history and film degree. But I remember freshman year, like watching a lot of video essays on YouTube like early, like nostalgic critic, angry video game nerd stuff that really got me thinking about film criticism and, you know, would would portend the major that I would pick the next year. And so that's uh, that's my number five, 2008. Nice. I, I won't reply to every one of yours. Uh, I had a lot of like follow up thoughts on my own perspective on some of those things. Mm -hmm. I want to pick a movie sometime where I can talk about my full thoughts on college and particularly my experience going to college and why it wasn't quite so positive for me. But that that's awesome. I mean, right around that age is absolutely a great time of life. What's your number four? My number four is 2017. So this is kind of a tale of two halves of the year. So this is the year that I turned 29. And the first half of 2017 a little bit melancholy, just a lot of waiting. You know, I'd been married for five years at this point, but the big thing was that we were expecting our first kid. And so the baby, now my four-year-old daughter, was due in July of 2017. And that first half of the year, again, we, we traveled a little, we hung out, mostly we just waited. And then my daughter was born in July and I mean, if you want to talk about like influence years or things that have happened that have influenced my life since and permanently, irrevocably, and for me, just absolutely for the better, having a kid is the single most transformative experience in my life in just about every single way. I mean, I loved it so much. Like the first time I had a kid, I have two, I was excited about it. even the hard stuff. It was just new. And I was, I was so proud and so excited and so enthused and just so happy. And man, I love being a dad so much. And I, I loved it from the start. I know some people have a hard time with becoming a dad for the first time. Not me. I, I was there for it. And man, uh, I'm getting misty. eyed just thinking about it and just talking about it. But like uh, the second half of 2017, I was doing everything, taking care of my daughter and doing everything with her. And this was adjusting to my new life for it, it was some of the happiest I've ever been. So uh, the only reason that it doesn't rank higher is because half the year was just waiting for that. And then the second half of that was, um, you know, great. I, the first half wasn't a total waste. I, I saw Hamilton, which was pretty important to me. I wrote about that in our old blog about why that was kind of important to me. I traveled to Charleston. That was kind of nice. But 
it's really the second half of 2017 that puts it there for me. Having becoming a dad. Most formative experience in your life, having a kid. Second most formative experience, seeing Hamilton. <laughs> no, that's good. I mean, wow. I'm glad you got to share that. My number four, I have 2016. I had some good experiences in 2016. This was the first year I was working the whole summer season uh, in the warehouse at the company we used to both work at. I'm uh, now doing another session, gearing up for the summer in the warehouse. You know, previously I had led classes with the company, done summer program classes, and then in the uh, off-season in the school year doing the after-school program. But here in the warehouse, I was like in one place every day, working with the same group of people every day, which was something that I hadn't really done before. And so I, I, you know, I had some friends that I was seeing every day. A couple other highlights, 2016, I took a trip to a swamp on like a spur of the moment. I filmed for my show down at the Green Swamp in North Carolina, where Venus flytraps grow naturally. And this was something I heard about on a podcast like a couple weeks before. And I thought, you know what? I want to go see this. And it was like a six hour drive either way. But on May 11th of 2016, I got up really early and I drove down there, walked around the swamp, found the Venus flytraps, got like 15 minutes of footage of various things that I could piece together, wandered around for a couple hours, and then drove the six hours back. It was a really good day. And this summer, I think, had the best string of consecutive episodes of my TV show. I just felt like I was firing on all cylinders, producing a good string of episodes from about um, episode 37, which was the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse episode, up through 43, I think, which was our Halloween episode where you and I, Dan, traveled to New Orleans. That's right. That was a great trip. It was like there was no miss in any of those episodes. Everything was offering up something new creatively. Excellent pick. What's your number three, Dan? We're getting into the heady numbers now. Yeah. So number three for me is 2012. And that's the year that I turned 24. This one is off the charts on the personal influence scale. Also pretty strong on the just golden hues looking back scale. Um, but this is the year that a lot of things happened to me. Uh, the biggest one is I got married in 2012 and uh, I'm still happily married. And, you know, my wife is my partner in everything I do. And, you know, we never lived together prior to getting married. That's the year that she graduated college. And yeah, I mean, obviously like that, maybe even more so than having a kid. Or I mean, they're kind of basically the two events of my adulthood that shape the life that I live right now. And so... I mean, obviously, getting married is one of the most important things you'll ever do. And for me, it's, it's a really fond memory. I also went on my honeymoon to Hawaii, um, one of the first really big trips I ever did, as, particularly as an adult. That was a terrific honeymoon. And, you know, eased into married life. We got our apartment. It was a really nice little apartment. I think you came there once or twice, Brian. Yeah, I was definitely there. We moved in 2013 to our old house that we'd actually just left a couple weeks ago. And... Yeah, uh, 
2012, I also did some other fun stuff. I was really settling into my first job then, or my first full-time job uh, after college. And that was also the first year that I successfully pleaded National Novel Writing Month, at least in a way that I was like proud of and like felt like I'd really accomplished something. A story that has echoed in many the goods picks about like trying to find the line between friendship and romance. And it's still like kind of a story that I'm attracted to and, and want to, uh, you know, tell at some point. I don't know whether I, I, I guess I've told it talking about it on the pod, but whether that story could ever become something more than that um, now, 10 years ago that I wrote it for the first time. Just a year that I'm really shaped my life and, and had some things I was proud of and a, a good time for me. 2012 is my number three, Brian. What about you? What's your number three? Here at number three, I have 2004. It popped up a little lower on your list. 2004, I was the second half of eighth grade, first half of ninth grade for me. So uh, this is mostly for the uh, eighth grade half. I have a joke with my brother that like, everything meaningful happened to me in eighth grade. Like just, I just have a bumper crop of memories. And uh, part of that is like, I was always talking to a friend on AIM. And so just, I, I felt like constantly connected to somebody. Oh, and, and I had two, two friends who had identical schedules to me. So it was like every period, every single day, we had the same schedule. So we were just always connected and in conversation. But this was my first experience of kind of having like a senior year of being the oldest in a group of students. You know, it's it's your last year at the school. I don't know. I, I remember I had a really good group of teachers this year, kind of eccentric, especially the um, civics teacher kind of let us do eccentric stuff. And one of the things I did was I had a list of phobias from... I think it was phobialist.com. And every day I was invited at the end of the day to share an item from the phobia list. I don't know. Probably pretty dorky. I thought it was fun. And I just, I look back with fondness on my eighth grade year, as it sounds like you do as well. Yeah, it was a good time for me too. And high school wasn't, wasn't too bad either. I think we both liked our high school experience. I'd say freshman year, probably a lower point for me. But I mean, I still, I felt like I belonged at this school where we, we both ended up, uh, which was like a magnet program. So it was like, you know, Harry Potter going to Hogwarts. What's your number two, Dan? So my number two is a year that you have mentioned, and that is 2016. So I have 2016 at number two. It, it ranks highly on both of the scales I mentioned, just a good time in my life, but also extremely influential for me personally. So I got laid off in 2016 from the job that I had had for six years out of college, a job I, I really liked. It was a great lifestyle job for me. Um, I learned a lot of life skills, matured a lot in that job, but I had kind of been putting off looking for other jobs just because the lifestyle was so good. And I was just kind of coasting there. And at the time, it was a little bit mixed. Uh, actually, Brian, I don't know if you'll recall this specifically or not. I got laid off like right before we went to that trip to New Orleans. 
Yeah, I remember talking about it on the plane when it was just basically you and I on this plane. It was like an empty plane. I spread out across an entire row of seats and was drinking Fireball in airplane bottles. Right. And that ended up being a really good thing to happen to me. I, I have advanced a lot in my career since then in a lot of ways. And uh, I think that was a good change for me. But 2016, that's just one thing. And I would say maybe the most influential thing, but certainly not the fondest thing. My big thing from 2016 that I've talked about on this pod before is um, I went to Italy. And that is the greatest trip of my life and probably will always be the greatest trip of my life. Just really changed the way I viewed the world and other people and different cultures and just gave me some really mind-changing experiences of encountering these these cities with these rich histories and this this vast culture and all this stuff to consume and definitely made me more of a traveler. I never thought of myself as a traveler and I still kind of have that homebody instinct that I mentioned earlier, but this is where I kind of got it. And um, that, I mean, you know, just a, a really terrific life-changing trip for me. Then the other big thing in 2016 is that that's when I learned that I was going to become a dad. So 2017 was the year that I became the dad. 2016 was the year that I learned that I would become a dad. And it's something I had been looking forward to for a long time. I mean, obviously, you know, that's a domino, not the first domino and certainly not the last domino, but an extremely important domino in the way that my life has shaped since then. And I just had a lot of good time in 2016. I mean, I really, uh, I made a lot of new friends that I still keep up with at, at my new job. I had kind of faded a little bit on earnthis.net, um, which had been kind of my passion project for, you know, seven years before that, but I was still doing some writing for it. It was still kind of important to me doing a lot of writing, a lot of reading, a lot of just creative stuff that time, really close to a few people. And yeah, uh, it, it didn't, it was not a year without bumps. There's a couple of like specific things in 2016 that weren't my favorite things. So that's one reason that I kind of holding off from having to be number one. But just a really important year in my life that a inflection point, I would say, um, for, for me being the adult and the person that I am now. So that's my number two. Brian, what's your number two? Cool. So at number two, I have 2019. So not too long ago. And there's a couple reasons why this was such a good year. One really big reason is I got close to somebody that I, I had been really hopeful to be close to them. So for about three months... That looked like it might bear some fruit, and ultimately didn't, but in that time I was really, really happy. And also, I kept making crazy good Craigslist scores. Like, I got a suit of armor, which is something I've always wanted, uh, was able to make that purchase. Uh, but also, like, I picked up this huge electric chair prop for free. Somebody was just giving it away. And it like had all these bells and whistles, uh, a lot of great stuff for my horror show. There's like this life-size taxidermy dragon head. And again, I just felt plugged in. I felt like a lot of things were swinging my way. There was this college class that my old professor was teaching in DC and he brought his whole class onto my TV show Gauntly and they were all a part of the episode. So that was a lot of fun and meaningful and memorable. I think it was just an important year for me to have at that time, uh, especially leading into 2020. That's awesome. Yeah, it helped me evaluate some things. Yeah. 
And Dan, what is your big number one? Yeah, the greatest year of my life. I, I felt pretty confident this was going to be number one as soon as we kind of set up the exercise and that this time span would be number one, regardless of how we ended up slicing and dicing it. And I actually think doing it by calendar year kind of optimizes this. Like We basically got the exact best slice of my life here in 2005 is uh, what I would consider the best year of my life. Maybe not the one that is like most directly responsible for the adult, the person that I am right now. But honestly, like maybe. <laughs> it's kind of crazy to look back 17 years and think that so many things I did then just have had long tales of consequences to who I am today. And it really has. Not only that, but I kind of talked, my, my number five was 2004, of just like this golden hue just rose-tinted glasses, like just everything seemed perfect that year. 2004 and 2005 are neck and neck in that regard for me. I don't even know which one I would put higher, but 2005 is right there, and it had all this stuff that really shaped me. So 2005 was the year that I turned 17, and it was the second half of my junior year of high school, the first half of my senior year of high school. So a couple things that happened that year. One is... My first love, I fell in love for the first time. Um, my most serious relationship up to that point, and still, I, I mean, I talked about it. I married my high school sweetheart. I got to know her over the summer of 2005 in this story that I am biased, but I think is like kind of romantic and narratively interesting that I will probably tell in some form on the pod someday. And I mean, that's obviously something that I still think very fondly of, but, you know, we ended up together forever. So that's obviously great. And, you know, that was really just a, a heart and mind opening experience to like really be with someone else in a very real way. Changed the way I thought about people and relationships and everything and, and really kind of started molding me into the person I am. And when you're kind of with someone like that, you find your values I mean, if it's the right person, your values start to like harmonize. You start to think about things the same way and talk about things the same way. And I've just been absurdly fortunate and blessed to have found that person at a time when we could really harmonize our values and build a life together where we really view the world and life the same way, which is not to say that we see every single thing the same way, but I, I really credit the happy marriage I have to the fact that we kind of grew up together from those young adult years. And obviously just it's it's a blissful time, but I, there's just so much going on in 2005 that just made me so happy. Um, the senior year of marching band is like one of the most fun experiences that I've ever had. You're just a big shot on campus, goofing around, having fun, getting into it all, building these friendships and these memories that, you know, it's kind of their, their golden hour, the, the nothing gold can stay, but this was their, their peak time. And that was a really special time for me. Just lots of like little doofy memories I still remember are all from 2005. Kind of like you were talking about how you, you have just these string of little things like for you as Craigslist wins that just stuck with you. I have all sorts of little memories from 2005 that are the same way for me, including my favorite football game I ever watched. I talked about my favorite basketball game, which I didn't watch live, but I've watched since in our April Fool's episode. Uh, but my favorite football game I ever watched live was in 2005. 
And this was back when you could just feel huge things about sports games that I can no longer feel at age 34. I just don't give a shit about which football team wins a game like I ever could in the way of 2005 when every thing that I was invested in was the most important thing in the world and emotions were huge and mostly positive emotions. And yeah, I mean, if I could go relive these times with the guarantee that I could come back to the life that I have now, I mean, 2005 is the time that I would hop to in a heartbeat. I I think the past few years since I had a kid was the point at which I would say I just couldn't even conceive of like going back in time and like reliving these years with back to the present, which is a thought exercise I've engaged in quite a bit because I feel like I've landed in a really good version of my life at this point that I would not want to risk losing. But if I could just like pensive, you know, ghost of Christmas past into a time, 2005 is that in a heartbeat. Just a really magical year for me. And I can say with pretty high confidence, the greatest year of my life, the happiest I've been, and just perhaps the most formative on me too, and and on many levels. There we go, number one. That's great. I'll say I would probably jump back to various points if offered the chance, but of course there's always the possibility that you just screw it up worse. Something something changes, something goes wrong, and and really uh, maybe it's not always the most terrible thing that Time zero points in one direction only. But uh, my number one, I have got a senior year as well. This is 2012. It was my senior year of college. And I think probably more than any other time, it was when I was really plugged in and just doing a lot of things, stirring a lot of pots. I had a play that I wrote get put on in a drama festival. The one that really sticks out to me is I ran the Chipotle mile which I was thinking of watching this film that we talked about about an hour ago of uh, just on a lark, taking on a quest and it becoming more and more epic as you go. And it really just crystallizing this moment in the, the edge of summer. And because I think like the next day after the Chipotle Mile, which was May 7th, so of course I had... Uh, I have two May holidays that I uh, celebrate personally. There was Swamp Day, May 11th, and there was Chipotle Mile Day, May 7th. And uh, I could probably combine those into like a hybrid President's Day sort of thing. Just that I tend to feel good right around that time of May. And uh, so right after I ran the Chipotle Mile, I delivered the student speech at William & Mary commencement. And uh, right after I made my speech, um, one of the teachers came up and and gave his speech that I've mentioned before uh, that ended with the line, you can always look back on this time when it's always spring and you're forever young. Just in that moment and since, that feels like a powerful line. That's great, yeah. I think it's apropos for our film, apropos for what we're doing here, and... I had a lot going on in 2012. Oh, I was a, a student teacher helping run the, the college film festival. I just felt like I was in my element. So that's number one for me. Interesting. And honestly, like intuitively, not that surprising that we both picked culminating years. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of both the end of an era and a start of a different era, too. I don't know. Right. And, and does seem in line with the, the movie. There you go. Yeah. Good's got personal. Glad we uh, put our heads together, get a little personal, dive into the deep end here. And so, Dan, what comes next? Is it a heavy film? Is it a light film? What are we What are we looking at on the horizon as time marches forward? 
so Brian, I'm. It was going to line up that not this pick, but the next pick would be my birthday episode, and so I'm a little torn on whether to have this be my birthday episode. I didn't come up with the pick I really felt good about for my birthday episode, so I'm just going to kick that bucket down the road a little bit. So, um, kick that can down the road a little bit. So, uh, k- kicking the bucket is a different thing. I, I should use the correct turn of phrase there, <laughs> especially as when it comes to aging and all, all this that we've been talking about today. Right. So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to pick a movie that I've just been itching to pick and talk about. And it might not be the perfect time to pick it. It's a little it's summery. So I, you know, we're right on the cusp of summer. But you know what? As of the recording of this, tomorrow's Memorial Day. So I can say we're in summer proper. So I'm going to pick a summer movie. And the movie I'm going to pick is Teen Beach Movie. And I'm going to pick its sequel as well. Teen Beach Movie 2, Brian. So if you manage to get bandwidth for two movies, watch the sequel as well. Uh, they're both fairly short, so I'm hoping you can. Uh, but the, the the Spotlight episode will be Teen Beach Movie, which is a Disney Channel original movie and a musical. So now we've picked like seven different Disney Channel movies at this point. I got to talk about this movie at some point. I got a lot of thoughts and proposed rewrites and opinions about this movie it should be a fun episode i i think it will resonate with some of our past picks and then brian uh if you're up for it i also want you to select your top five summer movies so your top five movies that are summer movies to you and i'm going to leave that a little bit open-ended we can maybe discuss a little bit but i do want to leave it open-ended what to you is a summer movie and, and what are your top five summer movies? So that's going to be our top five next week, Brian. Okay, I'm excited. I, I feel some synergy bubbling. Happy to move from the pool to the beach. Exactly. Join us again next time, listeners. Mm-hmm.